0: The C.D. Howe Institute. Essential Policy Intelligence.
1: Welcome to Intelligence Chat, a C.D. Howe Institute podcast that asks the right questions and provides the answers. I'm Kyle Murphy. Next week is a big one for NAFTA. Foreign Affairs Minister Christia Freeland will reveal Canada's broad negotiation goals when she testifies before the Parliamentary Committee on Trade next Monday, August 14th. And Canada the, the US and Mexico will sit down for a first round of talks in Washington on the 16th. With one in nine Canadian jobs overall relying on exports to the United States, the stakes are high. To help us unpack what to expect next week and in the ensuing months, we're joined now by Daniel Schwanen, an award-winning trade economist and vice president of research here at the CD Howe. Daniel, welcome. Thank you, Kyle. It's nice to be here. Daniel, before getting into the details of NAFTA, I want to start off high level. Throughout your career, you've witnessed the signing of the Canada-U.S. Free Trade Agreement and later the signing of NAFTA to include Mexico. These agreements were controversial at the time, but later would come to enjoy broad support among the public. Then Donald Trump was elected and it all seemed to change rather quickly. Did you ever imagine that support for trade policy would once again become as precarious as it was in the 1980s?
0: Uh, no i I think it's fair to say that uh, uh these NAFTA renegotiations are unexpected certainly a year ago wouldn't have expected it uh not that the agreement was not controversial, and I would say particularly in the United States um, but uh I think in Canada and Mexico, the benefits have been more apparent than they have been in the u s where the benefits are more diffuse. Um and I would also say, however, that for the US uh open trade has been enmeshed with uh other policies uh such as security and uh support for um uh multilateralism and and uh, and, and and so on. And so I think it's it's a bit of a surprise from that perspective uh to see uh the US's role in the world in a sense. Um put into question by uh, what, you know, what seems to be hostility towards open trade, uh, which translates into this renegotiating of the NAFTA. So it has come, I would say, a bit as a surprise, even though I think in the U.S. the agreement has been more controversial than in Canada or Mexico.
1: Daniel, in, uh, as you know, in mid-July, the U.S. Trade Representative published 16 pages summarizing the United States objectives for the renegotiation of NAFTA. And one of their aggressive stances, unsurprisingly, is the removal of the binational panel system in Chapter 19. For our listeners who uh, who may not be familiar with Uh, Chapter 19, it allows Canadian exporters to challenge determinations of dumping and subsidies by U.S. agencies before a binational panel instead of appealing through the U.S. courts. Daniel, some have suggested this may be the single greatest obstacle to a renegotiated NAFTA and could lead to a breakdown in the talks. Do you think that's a fair assessment?
0: It's a a fair assessment to say that it's very very important for Canada. Uh, whether it's the single most important obstacle, negotiations have a way of uh, of um, uh, you know mixing issues uh, I- issues up, and, and who knows whether that will become the single most obstacle at the end of the negotiations. But uh, it's fair to say that the U.S. Uh, system that makes uh, these determinations of anti-dumping duties when they uh, figure that there's dumping or, or unfairly low price in the U.S. market on the part of Canadian exporters, uh, or when Canadian exporters um, uh, are unfairly subsidized according to, um, to these U.S. agencies that make these determinations, um, namely the International Trade Commission and the Department of Commerce uh, in the U.S., uh, it's fair to say, and this has actually been demonstrated by the operation of the panel system over the uh, 23 years now of the NAFTA, uh, that these systems don't always work fairly, even according to U.S. law, Mm -hmm. which is the criteria that these panels have to use. Uh, They use the law of the importing country, the country that has imposed these dumping, uh, anti-dumping or countervailing duties. Mm -hmm. So it's fair to say that we know that the system doesn't always work fairly for Canadian exporters. We know that the U.S. court system is... Uh, more deferential to uh, the decision of these agencies might take longer, is more convoluted. And so it's very important mm-hmm. to have fair access, even by the terms of US law, to the US market on the part of our, of our exporters to have a system like that functioning well. Albeit, uh, and this is where negotiations may come up with some surprising outcome, uh, you know, it's always possible. Uh, to envisage uh, a deal with the U.S. whereby it's better understood, for example, uh, what is an unfair subsidy, what is unfair dumping on the part of uh, the the, the NAFTA partners into each other's markets, such that we have less complaints in the first place uh, that lead to these uh, these duties being imposed. And in that sense, that might uh, reduce the need For a chapter nineteen type of of dispute settlement mechanism, and the obvious example is uh, lumber Mm -hmm. uh, exporters have been a major user of this system for all kinds of good reasons. We think they're you know uh, they're they're not getting a fair shake on the part of uh, of the U.S. uh, uh, anti-dumping and countervailing duty uh, investigators, and um, if if we did get an agreement on on lumber specifically, uh, that made the, the U.S. more at ease with the Canadian system and persuaded Canadians they get a f- you know, fair shake in the U.S. market and they won't be targeted by these duties in the future, um, then you might envisage a situation where you say, well, okay, Chapter 19 is less important for us because here's a major user of this mechanism that, uh, that is finally getting a deal that is good for both sides.
1: Daniel, on the other hand, uh, the summary released by the U.S. trade representative wasn't necessarily all bad. Uh, There was a lot about modernizing the agreement, including new provisions on trade and services, digital commerce, intellectual property, uh, and even a reference to establishing, quote, strong and enforceable environmental obligations. Uh, Do you view some of these
0: objectives as a basis for a productive
1: renegotiation?
0: Yes, in fact uh, some of the work that we 've done dividing uh uh the issues that are going to be on the table between um you know the red flag sort of issues that that where where we really object to the zero sum uh approach of of, of uh, that the u s has put on the table um, to the more uh to the issues that are you know that require more of a cautionary flag. But that are not unusual. So intellectual property rights uh, being something that the US, uh, a lot of US industries want to see strengthened. There's some good and bad in that. And we can talk about that. But those are the kind of things we've discussed in the TPP, for example, already. Um, and then there are, you know, green, uh, frankly, green light issues. And there, there are more of them than I would have thought uh, uh, on the US list. Uh, that are really about reducing costs for business uh making trade um, uh, passage at the border for example uh, uh, easier and speedier and uh you know less costly for business regulatory harmonization uh is usually a good uh, cost reducing uh objective um and so on so I think that there's um uh there are there's there's a lot of basis put it that way. Uh, you don't have to look very far for a basis, potentially for an agreement uh, that would expand trade, make trade easier, reduce barriers. Um, but there, there's a core of issues at the same time uh, where the U.S. is taking, a, I would say, a very protection, protectionist approach. One of them being government procurement, where you know their objective is really to expand procurement opportunities for U.S. firms in Canada and Mexico, but uh, hold on tight and even reinforce uh, measures such as Buy America uh, that really constrain opportunities for Canadian and, for that matter, Mexican firms in the U.S. market. So there's, there's a lot of work to do, but uh, you're right that there, uh, there's actually quite a range of issues um, on which, uh, you know, I, that I view as green light sort of issues where we can really build on, on, on those to, um, to expand, uh, and open trade. Uh, between uh, the three countries. Uh, Daniel,
1: some have said that the the dynamics of the forthcoming negotiations are fundamentally different from ones in the past, uh, whereas before, Canadian negotiators were able to focus mainly on the U.S. trade representative, paying less attention to Congress uh, due to the fact that it was not involved in the process until after a deal had been made. Um, however, now Congress does have um, a role in the negotiation process under 2015 legislation. Um, how do you envision Canadian negotiators splitting their time between the u s trade representative uh, who is appointed by the president as president and so is essentially a member of the White House um and congress
0: yeah the, the big difference I would say this is the first time since uh uh probably richard Nixon um who imposed um uh a surcharge on on uh, tariffs into the U.S. on uh, all the U.S. trade partners in uh, 1971, this is probably the first time that we face a a really protectionist White House and USTR, uh, you know, given the U.S. uh, process and the fact that, uh, after all, Congress under the U.S. constitutions uh, is uh, responsible for um, ultimately for um, uh, uh, ruling uh, uh, or regulating, I should say, commerce uh, between the U.S. and foreign nations, or indeed between the states. Uh, that's ultimately the responsibility of Congress. But the President uh, and, and, and the White House really direct the negotiations. And this is the first time where, uh, potentially, we, Canada may have, or Mexico may have more allies in Congress and among uh, uh, state governors uh, than they might in, in the White House. In other words, uh, uh, as everyone knows, I think we have we have a very protectionist-leaning uh, White House, and hence this time USDR. USDR has always been aggressive in pursuing, let's call them uh, offensive uh, in sports terms, position on the part of US industry, fair game. But I think this is really the first time uh, that I see a real uh, pullback from earlier um, um, uh, market opening positions uh, into the United States market. In other words, you know, it's a, it's a shift towards protectionism that we haven't seen uh, before in such an obvious way. And there, I think the Canadian position uh, and the Mexican position. Is well, of course, we, we are at the receiving end of uh, what what is a demand to renegotiate, um, and uh, the position or the no, the no, the tactics of the Canadians, uh, for that matter, the Mexicans is really to uh, um, remind um, uh, representatives and senators uh, in the U.S. Congress uh, that a lot of jobs in there. States and their districts actually depend on good trade relations uh, with Canada and Mexico. Uh, It may not be as obvious to the Americans as it is to Canadians or Mexicans. Again, uh, the U.S. economy overall is less trade dependent. uh, But the gains are similar in the U.S. as they are in Canada and Mexico. Just more diffuse. Just more diffuse and relatively speaking uh, a little bit less, but that doesn't uh, – less obvious exactly. But that doesn't mean uh, that they're not, uh, in terms of number of jobs or dollars of business, um, in absolute terms, as important. And uh, so that's that's a work of education that uh, Canadians in particular have to do. It's a, it's, it's a much more detailed work and much more demanding work uh, than certainly uh, thinking that you can deal only with the White House. But in this case, it's absolutely uh, or, with USDR, but in this case it 's absolutely uh, crucial uh, to do this kind of work because at the end of the day, uh, to really fundamentally change the NAFTA, uh, you need to go through Congress, and that 's where uh, ultimately we need to seek the the support Daniel, I want to finish with a with a broad question. Uh,
1: what advice would you give to Minister Freeland and the rest of canada 's diplomatic presence in Washington for achieving a mutually beneficial reinvigorated NAFTA?
0: I don't know if I would call it advice, uh, Kyle, (laughs) but I think, uh, uh, you know, first of all, the Canadian team, uh, from the minister to the negotiators, uh, people at Global Affairs, uh, our diplomats, are, you know, I I don't need to give them advice on, on, you know, how to approach their... Uh, fellow negotiators congress and, and and so on i think uh, I think they 've been doing a superb job. However, I think that uh, from a, an economic standpoint, one thing we may need to be prepared to do and uh, uh, you know negotiations are going to be become very difficult and possibly even just to maintain and certainly to gain access that we need in the u s market. Um, we may need to be flexible on some of our positions. And uh, uh, that may or may not be welcome advice, but I think it's it's the reality that we're going to be facing at the end of the day in these negotiations. Um, there are some areas in which uh, uh, the U.S. in fact do want open trade, more open trade, yeah. um, and um, from us where Canadians are, are, have been... Traditionally, perhaps a little bit more protectionist than the Americans. Uh, an obvious one is supply management. There are others. Everyone's favorite trade topic.
1: Everyone's <laughs> favorite trade
0: topic. And, uh, you know, in, in reality, uh, our system of uh, keeping uh, managing our, our, our dairy supply, um, as well as that of some other agricultural commodities, um, keeps imports out. Uh, and keeps prices very, very high uh, in Canada. Not that the U.S. don't have similar systems with sugar, for example, and so on. But the reality is that uh, we're going to face a request to revisit the system, give more access at a minimum uh, to uh, American producers in that area. I think Canada needs to look long and hard uh, at that system and see how frankly it costs consumers, how uh, most other countries have done away with similar systems um, uh, and uh, how it hurts Canadian exports for that matter uh export potential uh, because we're not allowed to export because it it would be a subsidized export um so not to linger necessarily on supply management, but it's a perfect example of, a, of an area where, you know, in a sense, Canada is already shooting, shooting itself in the foot by being so protectionist, and you know we're being pushed to to, to open uh, our, our system. And at the end of the day, if that's something against which we can get something we need mm-hmm. from the U.S., uh, we have to prepare to uh, to give it that. That may or may not be welcome advice but i think uh, i like to think it's sound advice daniel thanks for joining us today you're very welcome kyle
1: you can find more research on trade and international economic policy at www.cdhow.org along with cutting-edge analysis on a wide variety of public policy issues and that's all for intelligence chat you can subscribe to this podcast on itunes until next time i'm kyle murphy thanks for listening
0: The C.D. Howe Institute, Essential Policy Intelligence.